the teams you care about. Mac Jones is good. That's not the question. The question is, is he good enough to win repeatedly in this loaded AFC? The stories that matter to you. If I'm Xander Bogarts, I need three things in order to get over that insulting contract offer. This is your home for New England sports. Jason Tatum, superstar. Book it. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEVAM FM and WDEVRadio.com. What's up, everybody? Happy Monday to you on the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVRadio.com. Full show today, our last full show for a couple of days. Red Sox off today. Thank you. So we're on 5.30 until 7 o'clock. Sox lose 3 of 4 in Kansas City. We're going to talk about the Sox. We're going to talk more UVM hoops today. Luke Harkins is going to stop by from College Basketball Heat. He wrote a great article on incoming UVM transfer Dylan Penn, who comes by way of Bellarmine. Fascinating article. So Luke Harkins is going to stop by about 6.35 or so. And I got to tell you, I might take a whole segment for this. I got to tell you all about my men's league baseball game from the weekend. Like, yes, I pitched and I pitched pretty well. I'll mention that. But the real story of the weekend was the dude on the other team who got tossed. I mean, I've seen some men's league players do some stuff before and say some stuff. This guy got run from the Green Mountain Baseball League playoffs. I got to tell you that story in the 6 o'clock hour. I'm going to try to hold off until about 630, 625. I may not be able to, so I'll tell you that story. You can get in on the Napa-Morrisville, Napa-Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. Your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. You can also check us out on Facebook Live, YouTube Live, and my Twitter account as well. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts of the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. I want to start the show here with just a reminder to everyone. When a team needs to get answers, those answers aren't always pretty. Let's remember that. When a team needs to get answers, those answers are not always pretty. We want them to be pretty. We want them to affirm something for us, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they yield us the answer that we don't want, but it's an answer all the same. Even despite what happened yesterday, keeping Jaron Duran on the roster was the right decision by the Boston Red Sox. Keeping him on the roster over Jackie Bradley Jr. was the right decision by the Boston Red Sox. And playing Jaron Duran every day was the right decision by the Boston Red Sox. Yes, Jaron Duran had a terrible seventh inning yesterday. He's had a pretty bad stretch at the plate for the last month and change. He's also been pretty lousy defensively overall. And the seventh inning yesterday was brutal, despite the one diving play you're about to hear here. One, two. Popped him up. Duran coming in. And, oh, he lost it again. 
Run around his second on his way to third. The throw is not in time. Durant initially, he put the hand up a little bit. High fly ball right center. Duran racing to the track. He is there leaping up and cannot make the play. Deem himself there, but it's another triple. Crazy. Probably open up some eyes in that Royals. Uh... Center field again. Duran on the move. Dives to make the play. He appears to be going back and forth with fans out there. He is. So the one diving play, a ball lost in the sun, a ball not gotten to in the gap, and talking to the fans. None of it was particularly good yesterday by Jaron Duran. And, hey, I get it. I get what the social media mob was saying. You're frustrated. You want him banished to AAA. Some of you want him kicked out of the organization. And I'm here to remind you calmly, the Boston Red Sox needed answers on Jaron Duran. And in order to get them, Jaron Duran needed to play and play a lot. And the answers that you get are not always pretty, but they're answers that are needed. Jaron Duran is 25 years old. Jaron Duran is about to be 26 years old. He's young, but he's not that young. In order to tell what you've got, you've got to play him. You needed to see over an extended period of time, if Jaron Duran has, A, the raw skill set to compete at the big league level, B, if he has the mental acumen to compete at the big league level, three, if he's got the ability to adjust in-game and after-game, and four, if he's coachable enough to improve. And when you're giving the kid a long runway like that, you're going to have some days like Duran had yesterday. But bottom line, the Red Sox needed to get the answers. Keeping Jackie Bradley Jr., a lot of people yesterday are like, hey, JBJ would have caught that. Hey, I'd like to have Jackie Bradley. Yeah, JBJ probably does make those plays, but the answers are out on JBJ. We already know what he is, and we already know that he's not a part of the long-term future. As for Duran, you needed to find out, is he my everyday center fielder moving forward? Is he better served as a bench option? Is he a guy who can't play center but can play in the corner? Is he a guy who can hit at the top of the order? Is he a guy who can only hit at the bottom? Or is he not even a big league player, period? You have to get those answers, and those answers could only be gotten by Duran playing and playing every day. We already knew what JBJ was. You had to keep Durand. You had to play him because he was a bunch of unknowns. You had to figure out exactly who he was and if he was going to be a part of this thing moving forward. My gut tells me as of today, knee-jerk reaction, Jaron Duran is not a key cog in the Red Sox machine moving forward. He's got two months still, almost 50 games plus, to change that perception. But as of now, He's not a key cog in the machine. He's not prohibiting me from making a move for an outfielder in the offseason. I'm not prohibited from trading him in the right deal. I don't think that right now he's part of your long-term future. But the only way you could know that is if you put the kid out there. And if you put the kid out there, you run the risk that yesterday is going to happen. 
I've been a Mariners fan my whole life. Jared Kelnick's a top prospect in all of baseball. He was hitting like 160 last year. Brought him up this year. He's hitting 139. Send him down to AAA. He comes back. He's two for his last 21. You got to find out if these guys can play. Now, Kelnick's 23. Duran's almost 26. There's a little more leeway there for a kid that's that young. But Duran had got to play. I know the pitchforks are out on him. But the answers were necessary. Maybe the Red Sox now know Duran's only a bench guy. He's only a pinch runner. He's only a bottom of the order bat. You got to find out. 802 585 3026. What what really this whole thing crystallizes to me is this whole situation proves something that I've always said. It's really, really hard to build for the future and play for the now at the same time. This whole thing proves that. It almost never works when you try, and it's really hard to do. Ironically, last year the Red Sox magically did it. Hyam Bloom was able to build the farm system up, and the team was able to win. Right? He built the farm system. He didn't sacrifice anything at the trade deadline of real value, and the team got to the ALCS. Last year, the team threaded the very difficult needle. Last year, the Patriots played the rookie quarterback and still got to the playoffs. They, too, threaded a difficult needle. So both of our teams did it in the same year, but by and large, it's really damn hard. And this Red Sox team is a reminder of that. The Red Sox tell us that they think they're a playoff team potentially. They think they have a roster built for the playoffs, but at the same time, they're playing all the kids and they're playing them a lot. And they're playing the kids that just might not be ready. You tell us you're trying to win, but you've punted away at bats to Bobby Dahlbeck. You've punted away at bats to Jaron Duran. You've punted away at bats to Franchi Cordero. You've given innings that you could have gone out and acquired a veteran starter. You've given innings to Josh Winkowski and to Connor Siebold and to Brian Bayo, maybe before they were ready. It is a very difficult needle to thread. And last year, notwithstanding, it usually doesn't work. You usually can't do both. If you were just trying to win, if it was solely about winning, then Jackie Bradley would be on this team and not Jaron Duran. If it was solely about winning, Eric Hosmer probably gets acquired f- six weeks ago. But it's not. It's Sometimes it is. It's about trying to build for the future. And building for the future is often the enemy of now. And that's just reality. Jaron Duran, in my mind, needed to play because I am building for the future. I have already checked the Red Sox out of this season. This, this weekend... Cleared it for me. They're not making the playoffs. I've said I don't think they're making the playoffs for weeks, but they're really not making the playoffs now. They're five games back of the final wild card spot. And as pessimistic as I am about the Mariners, I think that other teams ahead of them can hold. I think the White Sox, with an easy schedule, can finish out of the Red Sox. I don't know that Baltimore can, but I think Toronto can. I think the White Sox can. I think the Twins can. Seattle possibly could. There's too many teams to jump. So I've got the Red Sox out. So to me, build for the future with Jaron Duran and get rid of JBJ. I think they made the right move. See what Duran has. But if you were truly trying to win and that's all it was about, 
that JBJ would be here. It's really, really hard, really hard to build for the future and try to win at the same time. Text from uh, Kyle in South Burlington. Mookie Betts and Duran were both converted outfielders from second base. Duran has shown he cannot hit or field. Sadly, his trade value is likely nothing. I don't know. I have to look that up on Duran. I know Mookie is an infielder. Mookie will still play the infield now occasionally. But I don't know that Duran was a converted infielder. Someone can send it to me. Producers can look it up, but I don't know that off the top of my head. Right now, Jaron Duran's trade value is next to nothing. I, I would agree with that, that right now his trade value is not good. That said, if you want to make a deal in the offseason to a team that's not really contending, Jaron Durant, they, they would love to have a cheap, speedy center fielder for five years. At least take the chance on it, right? Remember Michael Chavis? Michael Chavis didn't have a place for the Red Sox. Michael Chavis has been a decent guy for the Pittsburgh Pirates. If Jared Durant, if the Red Sox want to make a trade in the offseason, they want to send Durant, who's essentially a lottery ticket, to the Oakland A's, the cheap Oakland A's. Don't you think they'd love to have a guy who has some great speed, at least has the one carrying tool? Yeah, sure, we'll, we'll give you something. For a cheap player we're paying nothing to who's got a great carrying tool, maybe Jaron Duran could be Michael Chavis before the Oakland A's. Maybe Jaron Duran can go play for the Cincinnati Reds. There's a place for Jaron Duran in baseball. The question is, is he, you know, do you want him as your fourth outfielder on a good team, hopefully, or is he a potential starter on a team that's going nowhere because they're willing to take on a you know, a, a lottery ticket, a cheap lottery ticket. So I agree. If you're trying to get Frankie Montas in the off season or whoever this year's version of Frankie Montas is, Jaron Duran's no longer helping you. But could Jaron Duran bring back a useful bullpen arm? Maybe. To a team that's looking to shed payroll? Possibly. We'll see what happens. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Patriots offense, the reports have been continually bad from training camp. But now, not only is the Patriots offense bad, I'm also very confused. And I'll tell you why. That's next on DEV. The Brady Parker Show now has an interactive text line. So reach out now at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. Peter and Williston, Duran's outfield is so bad that Duran Duran would be better in center than Jaron Duran. Ross says, uh, Brady, nice to meet you on Saturday. That's right. I caught Ross, one of our listeners, out at Mark's Barbecue. Mark Barbecue over in Essex. Uh, so delicious food and great to meet listeners as well. If you ever do see me out, if you happen to know what I look like, whatever, feel free to pop in and say hi wherever I'm at because I, uh, I love meeting the listeners and appreciate all of you who do listen here. Uh, I am confused 
about the Patriots offense. I want to discuss the Pats offense again here briefly today. Patriots had a mock game over the weekend. The reports on the offense continue to not be that great. Patriots are are practicing right now. And Tom Curran of NBC Sports Boston just writes on Twitter a few minutes ago, Patriots' number one offense today has been distressingly bad. Run stuffs, aborted plays, would-be sacks, distress lobs into traffic just to get the ball out. Beginning to feel like it's less the new offense and more of the post-Dante Scarnecchia cycle of offensive line coaches, they are perpetually overwhelmed. So nothing right now for the Patriots offense is good. None of the reports are good. Tom Curran says it feels a little bit less of the new offense. I want to I want to go to the new offense theory here because Jacoby Myers, Patriots wide receiver, my favorite guy on that Pats wide receiver room, he said something very honest the other day. Uh, it's definitely been something to get used to, you know, but it's like they say with change at all, you know what I mean? Any change is kind of hard, you know, I mean? it's going to be growing pains, and I think we're going through that stages, and this is a kind of a place where they want everything perfect, so it's just change and perfection are kind of a hard, you know what I mean? It's a hard mix, so yeah. we've kind of been going through it, but at the same time, I feel like it's a great learning experience. So, so Myers says that they're having a hard time learning and perfecting the new offense. But I'm confused. I have to admit, I don't get it. I thought, or at least I thought we were told, the Patriots' offense for this year wasn't new. The verbiage that we heard for the Patriots' offense was that the offense was being streamlined. Not that they were putting in a new offense. Okay, exactly two months ago today, on June 8th, Mike Reese, Patriots writer for ESPN, he, he, he talked from Patriots minicamp about the offense. I think what, what he's doing is trying to streamline it. So basically, with Josh McDaniels having been here in two separate stints, like the book got pretty heavy. Right. Like, so by the time Josh had finished up the 2021 season, he's got like 15, 16 years of backlog. And what Bill Belichick wanted to do this offseason was say, let's go through this offensive playbook that we've accumulated over all these years under Josh. And let's start to, like, trim it a little bit and simplify in certain areas. When Josh McDaniels and Tom Brady were here. They were operating on a graduate level when it came to the offense. So they had all these little inside things that were hard for others to pick up on, and that's why the Patriots' offense was so complex. You had all these new players, all these young draftees, all these free agent pickups. They were all trying to learn this graduate-level offense. But now with Brady gone and with McDaniels gone, and you just heard from Reese there, they were talking about streamlining the offense, about making it easier, about simplifying it, maybe taking it back to like a high school equivalency. Okay, doesn't mean they're really dumbing down the offense, but they're making it a little bit simpler. They were going to get rid of all that extra stuff that Brady and McDaniels had. I don't understand why this is so confusing. It, we were led to believe it's not a new offense. We were led to believe it's the same offense, but simpler. If that's the case, why can guys not pick it up? Why are they having so much trouble? I thought it was just simpler terminology, diff easier stuff to conceptualize. That's what I was led to believe. If that is the case, why are we struggling to figure it out? 
Somebody tell me. 802-585-3026. Is it a new offense or is it the same offense but simpler? One way we were lied to or one way it's not being made simpler. I don't get it. Jacoby Myers worked well in the graduate level offense. And he can't figure out the pared down version? It leads me to one conclusion. That the Patriots coaching staff is not doing a good job teaching the offense. That's what it comes down to for me. We have been so worried about Matt Patricia and Joe Judge potentially calling plays that we neglected, that we just completely glossed over. Can they even teach the concepts? Can they teach the plays? Can they teach the verbiage? Can they lead the meeting room? This is a problem. The offense is supposed to be being made easier. That should be good for the players. And it should be good for the coaches because they don't have to get on the McDaniels-Brady level. Why can't they figure it out well enough to teach it? I'm bothered by all this. I am bothered by all of this right now. If it's a new offense, why weren't we told it's a new offense? If it's the same offense but simpler, why is it not easy to teach? Why is it not easy to learn? It leads me to believe that the coaches are not doing a good enough job. That, that's what this comes down to for me. It shouldn't be this difficult. Tech says, Brady, why are they not just running the same offenses last year when Max showed he could handle Josh McDaniels' game plans? Well, I think that reason is Josh McDaniels isn't here. Matt Patricia and Joe Judge, they're not on Josh McDaniels' level offensively. And that, that's what this is. They can't run the same offense as last year because the guy who put in that offense isn't there. So Bill has an offensive concept and book that he thinks can be put in that everybody should be able to get. And not everybody can get it, apparently. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb and say the, the players are not incapable of learning a simpler offense. I got to think the people relaying them that offense are the problem. Players have learned offenses for years. I got to think that this comes down to two or three people. Bill, Patricia, and Judge not able to relay the information. Not able to convey. I mean, how many of you guys have had teachers out there that are brilliant people, smart teachers, but they can't relay information well? I'm sure we've all had them. That might be where we're at with Joe Judge and Matt Patricia. You have a concept that is allegedly easier that they either can't grasp or can't teach. Either way, it's a problem. But we've been so worried about who's calling the plays to even worry about. Can, can we even get the players to, to, to understand what's happening? I just, I, I, none of this is good news. When you read that the Patriots offensive line is perpetually overwhelmed, when you read that the number one offense has been distressingly bad, none of this is good. The Patriots are a team that's going to have to rely on their offense. Like, it would be one thing if you told me, hey, the Patriots have the best defense in the league, but their offense is going to struggle. I'd say, okay, they're going to have to win games 17-14. They're going to have to win games 13-10. If they had that in their back pocket, that would be one thing. They don't have that in their back pocket. The offense is going to have to carry this team. 
They're not going to have to win 49 to 48 every week, but the Patriots offense is going to have to be in the 27 point neighborhood. I think to win a lot of games, 27, 24, 31, 28, 34, 25, 34, 24, they're going to have to put up points. They can't just sit back and rely on the defense. They don't have that kind of defense. And the fact that they don't have that kind of defense is even more distressing that the Pats offense can't get anything going in camp. So last week I wrote off the struggles and said, ah, no big deal. They got four weeks to figure it out, five weeks to figure it out. They still got four weeks to figure it out. They can still fix this. But if they're just having to inch forward ever so slightly and they're not able to really get going, then, I mean, they're, they're going to have a lot of ground to make up here. Teams are going to be able to score on them. They've got to be able to score back. This is this is not good news. And it's a Patriots offense that is devoid of top-end talent. I believe that their overall depth is pretty good. I said last week I like their depth more than I thought I would. I like their players and pieces more than I thought I would. But because when you don't have top-end talent, you're going to need to be well-schooled, well-coached. And the fact that they can't implement what should be the same offense, essentially, but an easier version of it, that portends to me that you are not being well-schooled and well-coached. Patriots are going to have to win games with their offense this year. This is not sit back, relax, put our defense and kicking game in the best positions. Pats are going to have to score. they got to figure this thing out quickly. When Jacoby Myers says, you know, hey, we're having a hard time here, I, I I'm confused because I didn't think it, it wasn't supposed to be a new offense. It was supposed to be the same but simpler. And here we are. Guys have had a full off season of minicamp OTAs and, and film sessions and guys that have met with Mac. They've had all that, and they can't figure it out. Leads me to believe the messengers are the problem here. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. I promise you in the 6 o'clock hour, I will tell you about my baseball game this weekend and the guy that got run, the guy that got tossed, because uh, that's that's quite a story. I've seen some stuff. This one was up there, though, as far as men's league outbursts go. But then when we come back, is it fair to start wondering about Alex Cora's job security? We'll talk about that next on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. All 90 minutes today, so we are up until 7 o'clock. Jazz with George Thomas comes your way at 7. No Red Sox baseball. Sox lose 3 of 4 to the Kansas City Royals. They're now five games back of the final wild card spot. I will tell you the the story about the guy getting tossed. I don't think I can wait until 6.30. Like, I wanted to wait till about 6.30. I think I'm going to do it at about 6.15. So I'm going to make this segment short and kind of get to the baseball stuff for the weekend here for my game because I think it's pretty inter- it's a pretty interesting story, actually, of everything that went down. I do want to get on the Red Sox here and take your thoughts on this. 802-585-3026. Red Sox are disappointing. Red Sox are fading fast in the playoff race. Is it fair to start wondering about Alex Cora's job security? 802-585-3026. I saw that on Twitter yesterday. Someone said it is fair to wonder about 
Alex Cora's job security, and it is fair to worry to worry and wonder about his Red Sox future. Do you think that's the case? Let me know, 802-585-3026. I think before I answer it, first and foremost, it kind of depends on how you view Alex Cora's tenure. Do you view all of Alex Cora's four seasons as in one, as in he won a World Series and then missed the playoffs in 2019, failed to make the World Series in 2021, and now they've underachieved in 2022? Do you view all of it together, or do you view it kind of in two parts, where it's World Series and missed playoffs, then he's gone, and then he's back, and it's two more years of last year, ALCS this year underachieving. It kind of depends to me on how you view Alex Cora's tenure. I tend to view it as the latter. I tend to not really think about him pre-getting fired in how I look at everything. I, I consider him to be under all new circumstances now, so the old circumstances don't really apply. So to me, it's not fair to question Alex Cora's job security. I look at it as he came into a rebuilding situation. I do not look at it like Alex Cora had a World Series team at one point and then has completely torpedoed it. I look at it like he came into a rebuild. The 2021 Red Sox were a rebuilding situation. He took over a team that had finished last in the COVID-shortened year. He took over a team that had finished last and took it immediately to the ALCS, two wins away from the World Series. I think last year earned him a lot of brownie points. He got that team last year to massively overachieve. That alone, to me, warrants a longer leash. This year, no, the Red Sox are not as good. This year, yes, the Red Sox are more disappointing. But... I think they're in line kind of with where they should have been all along. Remember, took over a last place team. If he took over a last place team and then in year one after that had gone, you know, 78 and 84, and then this year had gone 82 and 80, we wouldn't be complaining that much, would we? We'd be saying, okay, took over a last place team, and they're steadily getting better. Well, last year they massively overachieved, and this year – they're kind of where they should be. Yes, they're 54 and 56. They're going to finish somewhere between 79 and 83 wins probably. If this was the normal second year of the rebuild for Alex Cora, then I don't think it would be that big of a disappointment. But last year was the outlier. I, I think Alex Cora deserves certainly another year here. I mean... Alex Cora, year three of the rebuild, I think is deserved. High and Bloom, year four. That's when we can start, I think, to really start to make some judgments on these guys. But to me, Cora, he, he took a team that was in last place in COVID 2020 and took them two wins away from the World Series. That, to me, no matter how disappointing this year is, that is not something where I'm considering you a fireable guy. 802 585. 3026. Uh, Red Sox made a trade with San Diego last week. They should have included another player and brought Don Orsillo back. If the team is going to be terrible, don't we at least deserve to be entertained? On that note, real quick, speaking of Don Orsillo, speaking of broadcasters, did you hear the, the news today that came out? 
that Dennis Eckersley is stepping aside from Nesson at the end of the year. Eck is retiring from broadcasting at the end of the year, and obviously it's for two very different reasons. But it's going to be a Red Sox fan base that has lost Jerry Remy and Dennis Eckersley in consecutive years. And that, to me, is just devastating. Remy is obviously a huge loss, rest in peace. But Dennis Eckersley is a huge loss, too. I think Eck is one of the best and brightest analysts in baseball, and he's now going to be gone. Now, it's totally understandable. He spent 50 years now in professional baseball, 20 with Nesson, nice round numbers. He said he wants to move back to the West Coast and be around his grandkids who are going to be four years old this year. Can't blame a guy for that. I absolutely can't blame um, Dennis Eckersley for wanting to move back to the West Coast, but I'm going to damn sure miss him in the broadcast booth. I think he is incredible. He's funny. He speaks his own language practically. You know, going bridge, three-run Johnson, you know, Uncle Charlie. I think Eck is wildly entertaining. He's a Hall of Famer who seems very modest on the air. He's got access and insight. He connects eras. I love listening to Dennis Eckersley. And he was only doing 75 games this year. He's kind of already pared some down. But I, I hope Nesson, you know, finds a really good replacement plan for him. Because there, there's no replacing Eck as far as I'm concerned in the broadcast booth. He is, to me, that good. I think he is great. Um and it's tough now to find a modern ball player that wants to do it 162 games a year because the guys who played recently, they all made good enough money. They don't have to go through that grind, right? Like Jerry Remy and Eck, as good as they were, played in an era where the money wasn't transformational. So they weren't sitting on it. Like they had to go back to work every day to continue to make a good living. So they did. Guys who played recently, David Ortiz doesn't have to spend 162 nights a year in the broadcast booth. He's well good on money. He doesn't need that grind. I would be fine if the Red Sox and Nesson wanted to keep going with this kind of hybrid approach where we see a little bit of Kevin Millar and a little bit of Kevin Euclid and put Will Middlebrooks into the booth instead of in the studio. And let's get Lou Maloney in there. Lou's not doing any games this year because he's coaching his kids team, I believe, is the reason for that. But. If you want to attack it with Dave O'Brien and a bunch of ex-players, I'm fine with that. But no one's going to be Eck. No one is going to be Eck. I think Eck is that good. And uh, I'm going to miss him at the end of the year. And as we continue to watch Red Sox games for the rest of the year, I'll continue to appreciate Eck overall. Uh, text on the text line, does High and Bloom survive? I believe yes. I think High and Bloom, I mean, certainly this year. Next year, I think, is the year where we can really start to judge. That, that's the money year for Haim Loom. He'll be in year four. He will have set the, set the plate when it comes to Red Sox prospects. He will have built up the farm system to a degree. they got a ton of payroll flexibility. So he will have achieved he'll, – he'll survive this year because he's achieved a lot of goals, right? Farm system is better. It's going to be top ten by the time the year is done. Farm system better check. Shed some payroll. He's done some of that. They're still in the luxury tax, so he hasn't done a perfect job, but he saved them some money. That'll be check. And next year, they got $80 million potentially free to spend. $80 million. What do you do with that? that that's where the rubber meets the road for High and Blue, I think. Is he going to be able to survive next year? 
the team's going to have to play well, and he's going to have to do some things splashy in the offseason, 100%. This year next time, we should be talking about the Red Sox potentially winning a division, not trying to avoid finishing in last place. Uh, but Alex Cora, I, I mean, I'm not even considering getting rid of him. Next, next year is, you know, if they're bad for a second straight year, then you can start to make a determination there. But but Alex Cora, I think, is certainly safe for now as well. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, I can't, I can't hold out anymore. I just I can't do it. I played my men's league baseball game this weekend. I pitched. Season ended in the playoffs. We lost. I got to tell you about the confusion that happened at the field and about the guy on the opposing team that got tossed. Like, I've been tossed from a game before. I never got my money's worth like this guy did. I, I haven't seen one quite like this. I'll tell you the story from the weekend. That's next on the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV. Want Brady to hear your opinion on the sports stories of the day? Text in at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on this Monday on WDEV AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. We're about 15 minutes away from Lucas Harkin stopping by. He wrote a great article on one of UVM men's basketball's biggest, uh, maybe, well, I'm sure it is their biggest incoming transfer, Dylan Penn, who comes by way of Bellarmine. So, a very cool um, story written in uh, Heat Check College Basketball. So, Lucas Harkins wrote the story. He'll be with us again in about 15 minutes. I got to take a, a, a quick detour here though and tell you about the absurdity of my men's league baseball weekend right like I've been kind of keeping you up to date on what's happened all year on my men's league and last weekend I got shelled right uh, by the Burlington Brewers so look there's a, a lot of layers to this but bottom line is my men's league season came to an end this weekend for my team but it was a very interesting weekend to say the least like I pitched great. I got a hit off a guy I have no business getting a hit off of. We, it was a zillion degrees. A guy on the other team got ejected. Like all kinds of stuff went down this weekend. So let me just kind of kind of start at the beginning. First off, I'm very grateful to have just been able to play another season. Right? I don't mean to get too sappy on it, but I'm 32 years old. I've been playing baseball my whole life. I went to a high school where I graduated with 730 kids, 730 kids in my class. A lot of guys that were better than me, and here I am. I am the last one still playing, right? So all these guys that were better than me growing up, I'm the last one standing. So I'm grateful to um, be healthy enough to be able to play, grateful to have a place to play with the Green Mountain Baseball League. It was the best the league has been competition-wise since I have ever since I got into it, you know, five years ago or whatever. So first and foremost, I'm grateful to have played. Second off, so we lost our playoff series, right? It was the first round of the playoffs. I think we were the eight seed. We were taken on the three seed. So we lost our playoff series two games to one. But I got to say, we did win game one, and game one is the game that I pitched. Best I've pitched all season. Like, where was this last weekend? Where was this three weeks ago? I took Buster Olney's advice, worked fast, threw a lot of strikes, threw a bunch of off-speed, Hit my spots. Guys made plays behind us. We hit in this win. So in the game we won, game one, when I pitched, a total 
and complete team effort. But look, off that, the weekend was a total cluster on all fronts. Like, follow me here. Series is best of three, right? It was supposed to be two games on Saturday, one game on Sunday if necessary. Sounds pretty self-explanatory, right? Well, I show we show up to the field on Saturday morning for an 11 a.m. start, and I get told that we're only playing one game, not two like we're supposed to, and I'm told that the other team is PO'd at us, and I'm trying to figure out why. So what happened is Friday night, one of the teams in the league dropped out of the playoffs randomly. Just dropped out. Maybe they couldn't get enough guys, but they just dropped out. So it changed our matchups entirely, right? So we had to play a totally different team, a team we weren't expecting to play. So Friday night, we learned we're playing a new team. Okay, fine. No big deal. Well, apparently, the new team had it arranged with the team they were originally supposed to play that they were going to start their games at 9 a.m. They were going to play like at 9 a.m. and noon and then be done for the afternoon. So all their guys had afternoon plans already. Well, then they play us. We didn't get, there wasn't enough time for us to get the 9 a.m. message. So we show up 11 o'clock to play the originally scheduled time. So we could only play one game because all their guys couldn't play after. Like They were all set to be done by like 2 o'clock. They all had plans. So we could only play one at 11 because no one was going to be around to play game two. Okay, fine. Then, uh, so then apparently the new team we were playing, they were told that we were not going to have enough players to play. So they were basically showing up expecting us to show up with eight players and forfeit. So they were thinking they weren't going to have to play at all. They were originally going to play one team for two games. Then it was us for one. And then they thought we weren't going to have enough players and we were going to have to forfeit. And they thought they were all going to just get to go home. So as a result, because they're banking on not playing, they sent their starting pitcher, the guy who was their ace, they sent him home. Basically like, hey, don't bother showing up. We're not going to play this game. So they were banking on us not having enough guys that they sent their pitcher home. Well, lo and behold, Sunday morning, 11 a.m., or Saturday morning, rather, 11 a.m., we show up with nine guys, enough to play. So now they thought they were going to play two. Then they thought they were going to play one. Then they thought we were going to forfeit, and they sent the pitcher home. Well, here we are. We have enough guys, and now they have to play. So they're salty that they have to play us, period. And then they're salty because they don't have their ace, who they've already told to not bother coming. So they start another guy. This is the game that I pitched, game one of the series on Saturday. They start another guy. He proceeds to get shelled. We score seven runs in the top of the first inning. I think they did before he even got an out. Maybe it was like five runs, actually. Five runs before he gets an out. Couldn't throw strikes. He's talking to the ums. He's chirping at our guys a bit. He gives up the five runs or whatever before he even gets an out. Maybe he gets one out. Then, then I pitch the bottom of the first, and I throw a pitch that borderline, but I thought it was a strike. Right, I always take it to strike. So borderline. And this guy, who's their pitcher, who'd been taken out and given up all these runs, he is coaching third base for them. And he screams at the ump. He's like, come on, Blue, both ways. Call it both ways. Come on, be consistent. This is the, the GD playoffs. And I'm like, newsflash, pal. You were charged with seven runs in the first. That ain't all on the ump. Okay? 
So I'm in my mind, I'm like, this dude, like, just be quiet, man. Like, you gave up all these runs. It ain't the ump's fault that you couldn't throw a strike and walk the leadoff guy. So the ump, it's like a zillion degrees in humid out. The ump calmly goes, hey, buddy, I don't need it from you, basically. Keep your mouth shut. Said it a little nicer than that. He's like, hey, I don't need to hear it from you. And then the guy continues to go nuts. Now, call it both ways. You screwed me. Call it both ways. This is the playoffs. And then the home plate umpire throws him out. And then all hell breaks loose. The guy then is in the third base coaching box. And he screams at the guy. He flips him the bird. And then goes, yeah, well, F you. He really says F, obviously. So he screams F you. And then he's looking at us on the field, and he's like, we shouldn't even be playing this game. You guys should have forfeited, blah, blah, blah. You should have forfeited, shouldn't even be here. That sucks. And, like, I'm like, jeez. Like, the guy had his kid there. Like, the guy who's getting thrown out had his kid there. And I'm like, my God, man. Like, look, I've gotten on umps before, and I take it seriously. I've never said F you to the ump ever in my life, especially in the men's league. Like, I've seen guys lose their stuff. This wasn't the biggest outburst I've ever seen in a men's league, but it was pretty darn close. Like this guy flipping the bird, saying F you, getting thrown out, having his kid there to hear all this. I'm like, buddy, relax. The ump did not screw you enough that you gave up seven runs. You came out, couldn't throw strikes, walked the leadoff guy, gave up a single, gave up a three-run homer. None of that was on the umps. So, that guy then doesn't leave the field like in an appropriate manner. So now we're all kind of just waiting around to see if he's going to blow up more. He doesn't. Fine. I, I pitch well. We win the game. Then we go on, have to play two on Sunday, and we end up losing both. And that and that's fine. Like I wish the season wasn't over, but we end up losing both. This guy shows up again on Sunday, and I'm like, isn't there a, a league rule about once you get thrown out about – you know, having to sit out a game or something? Apparently not. I got thrown out a game of a game when I was coaching. I've told you this story before. Maybe I'll tell it again sometime later. But when I was coaching, I got thrown out of a game, and I had to sit out. You know, I had to serve a suspension, a one-game suspension. And this guy didn't have to do that. I mean, like, what a crazy weekend for men's league baseball. It's a zillion degrees. I think we're playing two Saturday. We play one. They think they're playing, you know, we all think we're playing somebody different. They think they're playing at 9 a.m. We play at 11. They think we're going to forfeit. We don't. They send their ace pitcher home. He can't throw. This guy comes in, does poorly, gets tossed, blows up, says F you to the umpire. I win the game. And by the way, I had a hit. So there's a guy on this team who was a reliever for them who played like independent ball. He's a young guy, probably like 27, played independent ball. He definitely throws in the 90s. He was not throwing in the 90s for this league, but probably throwing 86, 87. And I singled off him to left field. Like, I can't hit a lick. I couldn't hit water if I fell out of a boat. And I singled off the guy who I had no business even making contact on. First pitch, single between third and short. I'm like, look, we lost, but one, I got a great story to tell of this guy who just went, you know, just threw threw a temper tantrum. And my last pitch of the year, I threw, or my last game of the year, I threw a complete game. My last pitch of the year was a strike for strike three, swing and miss. And my last swing of the year was a single. 
So for me, it ended okay, personally. But uh, this guy that got, don't get thrown out of men's leagues games, okay? Banter with the ump all you want, you know, throw a comment here and there. I've done that. I'm all for that. But saying F you, that's not something that anybody needs, okay? That's not something that anybody needs. But it is a good story to tell here on a Monday. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. I... Yeah, there are a couple of texts coming in, Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury. Text line, Joe in Berlin, great story, Brady. I have seen some men's league players uh, in my hockey league do similar things. Hey, it happens everywhere, right? Like, I've seen I've seen guys lose it on the basketball court. I've seen guys almost wanting to get into fights with each other. I've seen it. It happens. Doesn't make it right. Um, Bob in Newfane says, Sounds like this guy should be suspended from the league. Can't believe he did that with his kid there. I don't I don't think he should be suspended from the league, but I couldn't believe he did it with his kid there either. Like that to me was like the real egregious part. Not so much what he said or that he was angry, but yeah, they did it with his kid there. Um all right, one more. Shelby in um Orleans, Orleans County says, uh, sounds crazy. I can't whatever happened to you know, is or Oh, let me catch up here. Sounds crazy. Isn't it just a fun rec league like beer league softball? Well, it's not beer league softball, Shelby. It is um, It is competitive hardball, but still, it doesn't, you know, it's competitive. And it was the playoffs. So I get that everybody cared. But, yeah, this guy, you know, saying F you to the umpire, that wasn't needed. All right. I do appreciate you letting me digress. And I appreciate you letting me talk to you about my, my season, all season Long. I don't know what I finished with record-wise. I probably lost more games than I won. My team lost more games than we won. But I had a blast, as I do every year. Pitched well at the end. Got a win in the playoffs. And, you know, here we go. Now my arm can rest, thankfully, for the next eight months until I pick up a ball again about next February. So next, uh, I guess that would be about six months. So next March, seven or eight months, yeah, until I throw again. My arm my arm needs it. I thought I was going to have to play the field on Sunday after having thrown 100 pitches on Saturday. Thankfully, I didn't because we ended up with 10 or 11 guys there, so I didn't have to. But, uh, you know, my arm was throbbing. I'm glad I didn't have to play the field. Oh, one of the other things, real quick. Old intern Jack, who was here last year and now works at NBC5, he plays on our team. He didn't pitch all season. Didn't pitch all season. He threw six innings yesterday <laughs> between game one and two. He threw, like, game two innings in game one, four innings in game two. It was lights out. It was lights out, even though we lost. Like, just add that to the craziness, that a guy who hasn't pitched all year could come out and just shove against a very good team. So good job to intern Jack. All right, now we'll get back into the sports. UVM men's basketball is going north of the border this weekend to take on a couple of Canadian teams in a uh, north-of-the-border exhibition. One of the newest catamounts is a guy named Dylan Penn. He's a guy I'm very, very excited to watch. A great article was written ab- about him by Lucas Harkins of Heat Check College Basketball. We'll talk about Dylan Penn. What makes his game so unique? That's coming up next on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. The Brady Farkas Show now has an interactive text line, so reach out now at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on this Monday on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. 
know, as we talked about on Friday, the UVM men's basketball team is getting ready to head north. They're going to play this upcoming weekend for a couple of games in Montreal, August 12th through the 14th against a couple of Canadian colleges. And I'm very, very excited to see UVM and to hear the reports out of Catamount Country because this is going to be a lot different team than we saw last year. Ryan Davis is gone. Ben Chungu is gone. Isaiah Powell is gone. There's a lot of turnover on this roster. There's some new faces, though, we're going to get to see for the first time. And one of those new faces is a guy by the name of Dylan Penn. Dylan Penn is a transfer out of Bellarmine. You might remember Bellarmine as the team that couldn't get into the NCAA tournament last year despite winning their conference championship. And there was a great article written on Dylan Penn that came out late last week. And it's by our guy Lucas Harkins from Heat Check College Basketball. And Lucas joins us now. Lucas, man, I appreciate you being with us. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate the kind words on the piece. Well, I appreciate you being with us. And yeah, the piece was very, very interesting. And it kind of came at it from the angle of UVM has produced the last six America East Conference players of the year, from Trey Bell Haynes to Anthony Lamb to Ryan Davis, six straight. And it was, could Dylan Penn be next? How good is Dylan Penn? You know, he's just so interesting as a player, honestly. He doesn't really fit the mold of your typical, like, pretty conference player of the year. Like he's not, he doesn't have a necessarily like a game. that's really like super enjoyable to watch. He's not a guy who stretches the floor super well. He's not really a high flyer around the rim very often. Um, but he's just so unique in his ability to win games between five and 15 feet. Um, he does a really good job getting, getting to his spots in there. He finishes with both hands. Um, he's got a weird collection of floaters, push shots. He's got an unbelievable touch inside the paint. Um, which makes him really tough to guard because he's just so shifty with his footwork in there that when he gets to his spot, more often than not, it's going to go in. Um, And also just being that kind of passer from being able to play out of the post as a guard, uh, he does a great job hitting shooters on the perimeter um, if defenses bring extra attention to him down inside the paint. 5 to 15 feet leads me to believe he's a post player, but he's like a 6'3 guard, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. There, uh, at Bellarmine last year, either he shot or he immediately passed out of um, a post-up to a shot 121 times last year as a 6'3 guard. They did a really good job posting him up, and I think Vermont will use him somewhat in that kind of way this year, too. I mean, Vermont's always had a guy, um, at least recently, they've been able to post up. Usually it's been a big, usually it's been a guy like Ryan Davis that he can post up and operate out of that. Um, but they'll use Penn in that, kind of in the way Villanova's used its guards, um, and those inverted post-ups with guys like Jalen Brunson um, to make work in that area. I'm picturing a guy, and I'm going to go through here and talk about his highlights that I watched here momentarily. But when I read your piece, I was picturing this like bowling ball type guard who just bullies people down low. Is that kind of fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I don't know how how Vermont is tuned in. I'm, I'm a Butler basketball. I'm a Butler basketball fan. I'm a Butler grad. Um, to me, he reminds me a lot of Roosevelt Jones. Um, he's a better shooter than Roosevelt Jones was, but a guy who really like is big, he's strong. He will physically get you to five to 10 feet. And he will, he has a a lot of moves, um, in that area. He's really quick. Um, he does a little bit of what Trey Bell Hayden's did in that area, um, for Vermont a few years ago. I I think that he's just a guy that's really a tough matchup because a lot of times, you know, in this era of college basketball, the teams want to give up, don't want to give up layups or threes. Um, he's comfortable taking the shot that defenses are, are usually willing to give up, and that's that 10-foot area. Um, I think that he can make a killing there in kind of making what has become an inefficient shot to most offenses pretty efficient. 
We're talking with Lucas Harkins here from Heat Check College Basketball. Wrote the story on new UVM incoming transfer Dylan Pannies here with us on the Brady Farkas Show and WDEV. You mentioned it's maybe not the prettiest game to watch. I'm kind of picturing also like a James Harden, but without the knockdown three-point game. Like gets inside, array of spin moves, gets to the foul line, pretty efficient there. That's kind of what I'm picturing. Yeah, he's really unique, honestly. I mean, there aren't that many guys, at least in this um, – in, in such a heavy three-point era of basketball um, who are as effective as he is at getting to his spot. And really, the thing that I think stands out about Dylan Penn is he knows what he does so well. He knows he's really good inside the paint um, and around the basket and in that floater area. And he doesn't really settle all that often. Unless it's really a catch-and-shoot open three, for the most part, he doesn't really like take shots off the dribble from deep. He is aggressive. He will get to his spot. He will always try and attack. Um, more often than not, he will drive off the dribble. Um, and, and part of what makes him dangerous is he's not a straight line driver. He will like post you up and then curl off of you and try to get towards the basket. He will man- make his way to the paint however way it is. It might not be using straight quickness, a combo of his quickness and speed. He's a tough matchup in that regard. Can he handle bigger defenders? Because the answer to me, if I'm an opposing coach, is I'll just put someone 6'5", 6'6", on him and make it tough for him to shoot over me. Can he handle those kind of defenders too with size? Yeah, I think that's the, that's the tricky part for him. I think that I think that's part of that is the quickness. I think he's really quick out of his post moves that he can get to a like a scoop going to his right or left um, off of a move where he can get around that extended defender. But what the big key, and Coach Becker mentioned it to me when we were talking about Penn a couple weeks ago for the article, and it's just he doesn't really have to make a ton of threes. He just has to make enough threes where teams have to start going over screens against him with some regularity. Because if you go over a screen against Dylan Penn, he's going to get to that spot regardless. If you go under the screen, he's going to have to make that shot. I thought one of the more interesting points in your article was Coach Becker saying he's going to have to swallow his whistle you know, at times, what exactly did you and did he mean by that? So, as you know, Vermont's been one of the most efficient offensive teams in the country for the last several years. I mean, Becker does a great job of prioritizing the shots that analytics favor. They get to the rim a lot. They shoot really well from three at, at pretty high value. Um, and obviously having, having Davis and Shungu last year really helped in that as two pretty knockdown shooters. Um, but what, what, it, what it means by that is just Penn is a tough shot maker. He takes shots that kind of are that no, 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 yes for most players. Um, but they're kind of a yes right away for him. And there's something that Ed Becker talked that he was joking with um, his coaching staff about early in practices or early in workouts this summer was trying to get uh, into the use that like, that's actually a good shot for Dylan Penn. It's usually a shot that they're not okay with uh, being a priority within their offense, but it's a shot that works for him because he's so effective at it. You know, it's pretty interesting. It's always interesting, the dynamic when a transfer comes in, right? And a guy in Dylan Penn who's accomplished a lot, you're talking about him maybe being a conference player of the year. That leads me to believe that he very well might be the best player on this team. But you're walking into a situation where Robin Duncan's going to be a fifth-year senior. Aaron Deloney was the sixth man of the year last year. These are two guards that, you know, he'd be competing with, for lack of a better term. Did Coach Becker give any inclination as to if Penn is going to be a starter and kind of the leader of this team, or does he have to work his way into the rotation around these other guys who have been here and done it? You know, it was interesting. Um, he immediately, uh, multiple times, it's Robin Duncan's team. Um, he's the leader of the group. Um, he, he's been the leader. He's, a lead, he's an on-the-court leader. He's an off-the-court leader. He's the leader of the team. Whether or not he starts or, or kind of maintains eventual, I think kind of remains to be seen heading into the season with regards to Duncan. 
Um, but I think Penn's probably going to start and probably at the two next to Finn Sullivan. I, I think mm-hmm. would be my expectation would be Sullivan kind of running some of that offense, Penn, Penn running some of the offense. Um, being able to space the floor around Penn will be significant this year. Uh, if guys like, you know, Cam Gibson has kind of a rebound year as a shooter, um, would be pretty important for Vermont. I, I think that Penn will probably start, and I think they'll run just because of how unique he is as a player. Like, you can play him on the perimeter um, or post him up and run actions around that. Uh, what Vermont likes to do is, you know, draw a double team if they can and kind of work against the scrambling defense. And, and I mentioned that in my piece, too, that Penn is able to draw some of those doubles out of the paint. Um, and, and create for others who then swing it out to the opposite side and, and make a little bit more of an efficient offensive play. So I think we'll see Penn start. Um, I think as you, as you alluded to, though, the backcourt is pretty jammed with a few pieces that are, that are very experienced um, with Sullivan, Gibson, Deloney, um, Penn, and Duncan kind of all in that mix. Well, I was going to get you out of here on this. Um, the biggest concern for UVM this year, you know, I was talking with Coach Brennan about this last week. The biggest concern for UVM is kind of their lack of size. They're not particularly tall. They're not particularly long. So they don't have a, you know, a big man post-up player. Nick Fiorillo is more of kind of a guard in a forward's body. When you talk about Dylan Penn, though, it sounds like everybody in this team is good. Like that might not be as big an issue because Dylan Penn's going to be able to post up himself and handle that or get to the lane and kick out to a bunch of shooters of which UVM has in spades. So it sounds like, well, maybe it's getting to the offense in a little bit different way. It sounds like it's going to be pretty good for all the shooters on this roster. Yeah, I think he's going to do, I think offensively the fit is pretty clear and being able to kind of plug him um, into a bit of a post roll every once in a while uh, to kind of keep the perimeter spaced around him with shooters and make that kind of thing happen. And Fiorillo certainly helps with that as he brings the size defensively um, and some of that spacing offensively. And I think you definitely make a point. Uh, fixing the front court or retooling the front court coming to the series is the biggest question mark and the biggest challenge. Uh, Matt Ferretto really seems like an interesting addition um, coming back to the league. I think that he's looked good. Uh, and Perry Smith Jr. seems really intriguing as a freshman. I think he could play big minutes. Lucas Harkins, he checked college basketball, wrote the story on Dylan Penn, the Bellarmine transfer that uh, is making some uh, making some headlines here in the uh, early going of preseason stuff. Or not even preseason yet, but summer workouts, I guess. UVM headed to uh, Montreal this weekend. We'll get an official report on Dylan Penn and the rest of the Catamounts coming up next week after they play this weekend. Lucas, man, we appreciate the piece. Appreciate some time today. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, that was a great interview there with Lucas Harkins. Um, I'm very, very excited. I know it's just a couple of exhibition games in Montreal in August against teams that aren't even NCAA teams, but I'm very, very excited to see this new-look Catamount basketball roster. That was a great interview with Lucas Harkins. I thought it was a great piece that he wrote on Dylan Penn, and I think the piece and Lucas both explained it really well. Dylan Penn's game is really unique. That's the word for it. His game is is unlike really anything that we see, especially from a guard in college basketball today. The whole the whole game of basketball, both NBA and college, the whole game is three balls outside, dunks and layups inside. Penn is is not that like it's it's three balls from guards and big men and from big men it's just about dunks. Dylan Penn is not that. He is a guard who is a maestro around the basket. 
I went this morning in advance of the interview with, with Lucas Harkins, and I just watched Dylan Penn's highlights from last year at Bellarmine. If you watch, it's like a nine-minute highlight reel. If you watch even the first three minutes, the first third, you see like two threes from Dylan Penn. Everything else truly is within the lane. Dylan Penn can get downhill and go to the bucket. He can finish with both hands. He was hitting hook shots right and left, fallaways, getting to the line. It's just a very different game. But I think it's going to be a very fun game for UVM to have in their arsenal, for John Becker to have in his arsenal, and for UVM fans to watch all season long at Patrick Jim. Like, his game is going to be good on multiple different fronts for this program. One, he can just get downhill, go to the bucket himself, and score. For a team that's losing Ryan Davis and Ben Shungu, two all-conference players, for a team that's losing all of their points, you got to find a way to replace that. And Dylan Penn can help you do that. He can just go to the bucket and score. He averaged nearly 17 a game last year in the Atlantic Sun, a better league than the America East, so he should have, in theory, an easier time getting to the bucket in the America East. He shot 50% from the floor last year and 51% the year before that. He'll just go to the basket and score. And you're trying to replace scores, so he can help you do that. That's number one. Two, when he goes to the bucket, he's invariably going to get fouled, is he not? He's going to get to the cup, and he's going to get to the line. He attempted nearly three free throws a game last year, the exact same amount of free throws per game as Ben Shungu, so he can convert even more points at the line while also getting the other team in foul trouble, which is a huge plus, and we know that the America East rosters are not particularly deep. Teams have, you know, six, seven guys that they really trust. Outside of UVM and maybe Bryant this year, when you get to guys 9 and 10 in a rotation, you're seeing a significant drop-off. So if Dylan Penn can go to the bucket, get fouled, and get your starters into foul trouble, that is a huge plus for the Catamounts. And then number three, what maybe the thing that I'm most excited about, and we were talking about in the interview with Lucas a little while ago, is Dylan Penn can just now kick out to a bevy of shooters. A UVM has a bevy of them. Look, if if teams go into a game and say, hey, we're going to cover the shooters, well, Dylan Penn is going to go one-on-one and eat you alive at the bucket. He's going to beat you off the dribble, he's going to finish around the rim, and he's going to chew you up that way. And then if you decide to collapse on him and try to head him off with a double team or sending over help defense, well, he's going to find other guys who can hit. Finn Sullivan, pure stand-a-still shooter. Cam Gibson, injured last year, as Lucas said, didn't play a ton, had a couple of games, but didn't play a ton. Like, he'll be able to hit a three this year. Nick Fiorillo, big man from the outside. Deloney, like, there are shooters on this roster, and if you choose to collapse on Dylan Penn inside, he'll find guys open that can make it. If you choose not to, then he will eat you alive himself. I am very, very excited about this dynamic now. I know it's August 8th, and I know that I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I know it's the end of the show. I don't care. I'm very, very excited about this dynamic. I know that change is hard, and it's going to be different to not have Benny and Ryan Davis there, just like it was hard to not have Trey Bell Haynes or Steph Smith there. But Dylan Penn's game leads to a lot of options for this team. 
right? He can be downhill, play fast, get to the bucket. They can be physical inside. He can kick out to shooters. They can run in transition. And, like, I know this is just, again, a scrimmage weekend in Montreal, but I'm going to be very, 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 very curious on the reports from up there about how this all goes down, about how Penn and his style of play works with the guys, how his game looks. It is a fun style. It's atypical of today's game. I, I, I encourage you to go find the highlights on YouTube. Really, it's just a different game. It's something we haven't seen a lot of at UVM, right? Trey Bell Haynes could get to the bucket, and he could finish, but he was also a very, very willing passer, and that was kind of his MO. Ben Shungu was a guy who could get to the bucket and could finish there, but not as easily as Dylan Penn can. Dylan Penn is not as good a shooter as Benny is, but he's a guy who's going to be able to get to the bucket and score a little easier and then eventually be able to make you pay by kicking it out. The two questions that I have about this and about UVM, they're the ones that I expressed to Lucas Harkins, who just joined us now a couple of minutes ago. One is how do you figure out minutes and how do you figure out the rotation? Because Dylan Penn may be the best player on this team. He may be the best player on this team, but he's an outsider. How quickly does he gel with the guys who have been here? Robin Duncan's been here. Aaron Deloney's been here. They've earned it here. How quickly do they buy into somebody who's coming in to take some of their minutes and or some of their shots and or some of their points? That's a very realistic thing. If I'm a college kid like Aaron Deloney, I've worked through it, right? Bench player, sixth man of the year. Now's my chance to start. Now's my chance to be a leader. And now this transfer is going to come in and try to take the shine. Well, I might have something to say about that. How quickly do Robin Duncan and Aaron Deloney buy in to Dylan Penn being here and buy into his game, which might come at the impact or come at the expense of their own game? And I'll say right away, it doesn't sound to me like Robin Duncan and Dylan Penn can play together at the same time. Neither one is really a threat from deep. You can't have two drivers, playmakers, non-shooters on the floor at the same time in the backcourt. So you're going to have to divvy up minutes. Is Dylan Penn playing 20 and Robin Duncan's playing 20? Is Dylan Penn playing 30 and Robin Duncan's playing 10? And is he okay with that? The rotation is a big part of this for me. How do you figure out the rotation? And number two is I think the post is a very fascinating discussion for UVM, at least offensively. Anthony Lamb could play in the post the last couple of years. Peyton Henson could play in the post. Ryan Davis could play in the post. The traditional you know, post-up big man isn't really there, at least from the guys that we know and have seen already. Nick Fiorillo... I use this phrase in the interview. It really does strike me kind of as a guard in a forward's body. So defensively, yes, can he defend the post? But offensively, is he a guy who wants to be in the post? Does he try to make it part of his game? Or does, does he just play a perimeter game through and through? Because if that's the case, well, then how much do they just put Dylan Penn down there in the post? If Fiorillo doesn't really want to play down low, Sullivan's not a down low player. Okay, like they, they have a lot of guards, so perimeter-oriented players. If 
Fiorillo doesn't want to go down there, do they just say, screw it, and let the 6'3 Dylan Penn go down there and go to work? How much does UVM say, hey, our big man isn't really a back-to-the-basket player. We will just put you down there and let you bully people. I think those are fascinating discussions that UVM has to have because it looks like, based on the highlights, Dylan Penn needs to have the ball in his hands. Like, things can originate from him. I know Lucas said he might play the two, but I think it would be reversed, right? I think it would make more sense for Dylan Penn to play the point, have the ball in his hands, go to the bucket or kick out and make decisions, and Finn Sullivan to play the two so he can catch and chew. So, you know, Penn's got to have the ball in his hands as far as I'm concerned. How often do you let him just go to the cup with it or – have him pass it, then let him go establish in the post, and maybe he is your post player. And finally, before we get out of here, I, I know I told this to Lucas Harkins too. Um, when I first read the article, before I had watched the highlights, I was expecting Dylan Penn to just be a bowling ball. Again, kind of a big-bodied bully. He has anything but that. He is a slender athlete, very quick, good bounce, has great footwork, the ability to work with both hands. He is not a guy who just runs you over. He is a guy who is just good. I, I'm looking forward to hearing the reports out of this weekend. And look, Michelle and Diashimie, Rice product. Didn't see him last year. Sam Alamutu. A lot of good players on this roster. And uh, I don't know that Dylan Penn's going to be the next player of the year in Catamount Country, but the article leads you to believe that there's a chance of that. And uh, it's something certainly we'd welcome six straight conference player of the years. For the Catamounts. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. I know the crew up at NBC5 who is going to Montreal to, to watch these games. Maybe I'll have them come on next week and get their uh, get their opinion on how Dylan Penn and the rest of the Catamounts looked. But, hey, first time they're going to be on the court, right? August uh, 8th through the – August 9th through – no, not 9th. Uh, August 12th through the 14th. I was like, August 8th is today and August 9th is tomorrow. No, not then. August 12th through the 14th, so uh, Friday through Sunday, so – should be cool. No Red Sox baseball today. Thankfully, I think we could all use a break. Sox back at it again tomorrow. We're relegated back to short shows again tomorrow, but it's been great for the last uh, now six days to have full shows at it. So appreciate Lucas Harkins for stopping by in this segment, and uh, appreciate all of you for listening as well and everybody who got in on the Napa-Morrisville-Napa-Waterbury text line. Jazz with George Thomas is coming up next. You're listening to the Brady Farkas Show. Go download the podcast, please. Go download the podcast. It's free on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We'll see you tomorrow.